People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Fine Music Radio and it's Rodney Trudgeon introducing you to this week's edition of People of Note. I've become particularly interested in bees because a very good friend of mine is a beekeeper and makes the most delicious honey and is very involved and has a bee farm in Napier. And he told me about a book called Honey Mountain, the fascinating story of the Hunneberg since ancient times, its history of occupation, exploitation, development, and the miraculous Cape honeybees who survived it all. The book was written by Jeff Tribe who was an up-and-coming entomologist increasingly focusing on honeybee research when he became highly allergic to bee venom. Even the odor, he says, from an opened hive would set up a reaction. Welts would manifest all over my body, following a sting, my throat would close, and I would battle for air. But interestingly, despite the ever-present danger of an anaphylactic attack, honeybees were a perpetual source of fascination for Jeff during his 40-year career in entomology. He's now retired and lives in Cape Town, and he's continued to pursue his apiarian interest with the publication of his debut book, Honey Mountain. And I must say, it's a beautiful book. It is beautifully illustrated. It's on beautiful paper. And I found it completely fascinating. Jeff Tribe, welcome to People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. Thanks very much. So obviously my first question is, what prompted you to write this book? Before we talk about your background and all the rest of it, what prompted you to sit down and write a book like this? I've had this interest in bees even though I was working on other projects um, Mm -hmm. for the last few years. And a friend of mine who lives in the same suburb and is also a hobbyist beekeeper, mm-hmm. um, suggested that I write an original book on honeybees. And there is a, a, what they call the blue book written by Martin Johansme. He was the editor, and it's the manual of beekeeping in South Africa. So we didn't want to go that route, and we wanted something that was really African and have a, a nice background that's completely different to anything yeah. else that you can find in different parts of the world. Brilliant idea, because that's what we want. That's what we need. And I'd read about the um, Honey Mountain before, the Hjernenberg, as uh, the proper name is, by Dr. Anderson, who was a bee researcher, and he'd written about it when I was still living in, in Pretoria. And he was writing about the historical background but had never actually visited the area. When I was transferred down to Cape Town in 1980, I did a trip down with friends in an Indian canoe, well it's actually a trip up the Berg River, and we camped on the side of the the river there and I found some honeybee swarms there. But when I really got around a year or two later to go and scour the, the mountain, I couldn't find any bees whatsoever, not a single bee, let alone a swarm. And so what happened then is that, what it was about 20 years later, a German researcher wanted to come out and he wanted to look at the banded bee pirates, which are indigenous wasp, which attacks the bees in a huge way. And I took him out to the site because I knew the bee- I'd seen them there before. And while we were there and doing this work, I had uh, bee conservation friends also there. And I said, well, no, we must go and have a look at the Hunangberg again. Yeah. And this started it off and we got permission from the farmers again. 
and we scoured the mountain and we came across one single swarm. But the historical record said that they were trading huge amounts of honey in 1661 when Jan Donkwitz went on his first expedition up that way. So where were these bees? So we had to search around. <laughs> right. A bit of detective work, in fact. Where exactly is Honey Mountain, Hunningsberg, Hunningberg? The, the Hunningberg is near Porterville. There are several ones in the country, but the one we're talking about in particular is at Porterville. And it's um, two little hillocks with a, a saddle between them. And they've got the, the huge Kroot Winterhoekberger overlooking them. And on the, other, on the western side, you've got the, basically the sea. All right, it's quite some distance away. But that's, it's an isolated little mountain there. So how did it acquire the name Honey Mountain? Has that name been there for a long time? As you said, it goes back to traders and things. Is that why it was called Honey Mountain? Yes, because um, from the first trading operation up there, when honey was traded, every expedition who went up that way traded with honey. And why they went up that way was because to go through the Sandfelt is very difficult for the wagons in the old days. And so they had to choose certain routes, and they had certain landmarks that they followed. For example, the Teicherberg Mountain, and then onto the Riebeck Castile, and then onto the Hünengberg, and then onto the Pekitberg, and then over the mountains. So oh, this route right. was followed all the time, and the trading yeah. happened year after year as the explorers went out there. But now... We are talking also about the local people. One of the chapters in your book amuses me because of the names. There are many, many names of local people at the time. So they were trading with the travelers from the Dutch East India Company and so on. Is that right? Yes, that's Honey correct. was the main thing. That's right. Um, the, the, they were given instructions by the administrators of the Cape to get beeswax and to get honey. And there were a whole lot of things um, they had to trade, even tortoise shells, etc. Um, <laughs> right. It was a, you know, an exploratory for trade. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So this business, when you said you didn't find any hives there, presumably eventually you did because apparently there are thousands of bees there. Yes, yeah, so we eventually got um, about 38 hives in the cliffs along the Berg River. The farmers were very generous and uh, very helpful. And um, they'd remembered things from their days um, when they were youngsters, when they had time to explore these areas. And so we were taken to some of these areas. And then we took off from there, and we realized what we were looking for now is um, cliffs on the side of the Berg River. Mm -hmm. And that's where these huge swarms are hanging. They are a magnificent sight, as you can see in the book. Mm, they are. But that's what I said at the beginning. You've got some amazing pictures but Jeff, let's just stop and see what a bee enthusiast, what sort of music he likes. And I see we have the Rolling Stones rolling up. Tell me about why you've chosen this and what we're going to hear. Well, I thought, being interested in history, I'm one of the baby boomers. And so I thought I'd look at different music that meant something to me at different stages of my life. And still, when I'm driving, I hear this. So the Rolling Stones and was when I was a teenager. And um, it was um, an area of... Um, an era of, of innocence when America was now in the foreign nation of the world and we had such great expectations of it. So it was an, an era of innocence, I, I think. An era of innocence? Yes. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> It's so hot, wish your tired feet were fireproof Under 
We don't hear too often on Fine Music Radio under the boardwalk, the Rolling Stones there. And the first choice of my guest on Fine Music Radio is people of note this week, Jeff Tribe, whose new book, Honey Mountain, has just been published. And that's what we're talking about, the Honey Mountain out there, Piketberg thereabouts. What I'd like to know, apparently, talking about trading and all that, our honey, honey from there, was very sought after, both for sweeteners and for medicinal reasons. Is that true? Yes, the honey in South Africa is extremely good, bought from beekeepers. On the shelves today in various supermarkets, you've got to read the label very carefully because a lot of the honey is imported from overseas, Yes, and you don't particularly know what is in there. But the honey bees in this country are not subjected to any chemicals whatsoever. So you are getting pure honey and unadulterated honey. I wonder, that's amazing. I wonder why they're not, why haven't we infected them with chemicals? Well, when the varroa mite arrived in the country, how they treat them overseas is with chemicals. Mm -hmm. And it was found that our bees are, let's call it, uh, robust enough to have actually wiped out the disease. We lost a few of their hives in the beginning, and then they got on top of them. And so the chemical control that we thought that we would need actually fell away. So we don't use any chemical control mm-hmm. in the, this country. And of course the thing to do nowadays when you are shopping for honey is to look for raw honey, not the processed honey. Yes, the raw honey, it doesn't matter if it's crystallized because mm-hmm. that's a natural process. Yeah. 
but the different floral sauces will give you a different taste. It's like different wines. Of course. And it will be... You, I've even been choice. to a honey tasting, which yes. is interesting, with about six honeys. Yes, that's right. Um, but now, Jeff, so you discovered this mountain. And so tell me about your research. Did it involve clambering all over this mountain? And did it live up to its reputation? Well, we clambered around the mountain. It was hard going. <laughs> it needs a fire through that area to burn some of the fan boards there. Oh, really, really? But um, I was with Jenny Cullinan and Corin Sternberg and we searched the whole area and as I said we only found one nest. So the Hunungberg is basically a landmark where the trading went on and not the actual site where the bees were nesting. But now since then the bees have been nesting there. The, the bees have been there for Centuries, millennia. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. that's right. And they get robbed by the local people still today mm-hmm. and um, taking their lives into their own hands as the original records say because it's damn high up there that they've got to climb <laughs> really and they usually have got no kit they just got some smoke in in a tin or something and they clamber up there and they cut off the combs but it's interesting because judging from the pictures in this book that you've taken presumably some of those hives are very high in clefts and things and they have pictures of ladders and all that so it must be fairly precarious when you're working there very much so. We didn't climb up. We we didn't take the chance. <laughs> he said being um, <laughs> careful. Has it changed much, this place, the Honey Mountain, since the days of honey trading between the Europeans and South Africa? Yes, it has changed drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, the botanists usually come out and they tell you, they all talk about the Rhinosterbos uh, on the area, etc. But when you go back to the historical record, those valleys were full of animals, and the animals that were there feed on grass. They were, they were in the valleys. It was a huge grass felt there, mm-hmm. and of course you don't get that. You hardly get that anymore. And on the slopes you would get the fanbos on the higher mountains there, and the red hartebeest. There was quacha, um, rhinoceros, elephants, Gosh. and there's even a case which is quite interesting at the Fierentwintigrefiere there, where the Jan Dankwartz, after shooting a giraffe, jumped on the back of the giraffe to slit his throat, and the giraffe took off. Um, so even giraffes were found that, that far south <laughs> Good grief. Um, in that area. Yeah. So it's changed drastically. But is it, as an area, is it accessible? Is it the sort of place people can go to to explore? Is it too <laughs> dangerous, or it's not a tourist spot? Clearly. It's not a tourist spa- <laughs> spot. The bees are on private property. Mm-hmm. And if you basically don't know where to look, you won't easily see them. We knew what we were looking at, and uh, the other two sleuths with me were very, very good. They can see the bees flying, they follow the path, and we found the nest. What sort of colonies are there? Which bees? Is it the Cape bee, Cape honeybee, or what variety of bees are there? Or is it a whole lot of varieties? No, it's the Cape honeybee. The Cape honeybee is just um, an ecotype of the African bee. Mm-hmm. And so the African bee is Apis mellifera, and the one up in the savanna areas, the high-felt areas, is the Apis mellifera scutellata, and this is Apis mellifera capensis. And it basically follows the winter rainfall region. And um, there's uh, what you call the biological indicator, where you can actually look at a, another plant and look at its distribution and work out the distribution of the KP. And in this case, if you follow the, the distribution of the protea repens, follows very much that of the KP. Okay. So there's no direct involvement between the two of them, but the same cues 
are at work there with the environment and the climate. Gosh, and we're very fortunate, I'm told, to have the Cape honeybee here as a subspecies of the honeybee. It's often referred to as a unique honeybee, this Cape honeybee. Why is it referred to as being unique? It is unique. If a hive of any other honeybee species loses the queen, they have no chance of requeening. Some of the workers develop their ovaries and they become laying workers. And from there, they are able to lay eggs. In the case of all other species, because of the hymenoptera, the males are unfertilized eggs. So the drones that the bees will lay as being unfertilized will be drones. So all those of all other species, except the Cape honeybee, will be dying out eventually. They will lay male eggs, the drone eggs, and they will die out. But the Cape bee, with the lane workers, without being mated, they are able to lay which are clone of themselves. Gosh. So they're ba- able to rear a queen from the eggs of a lane worker. Wow. So that's lucky for us, obviously, with a Cape honeybee. Yes, there is a slaughter that happens. We, I worked with them in Pretoria. We brought some of them up there experimentally. And we had worked with observation halves. And we found that the third of the bees are killed. So we would set up the observation half and we'd remove the queen. And then a slaughter would break out. What, the slaughter between the bees themselves? They'd slaughter each other? The the workers will slaughter each other. And I was asked to see a pattern there. And the pattern I saw was that the older bees, the bald bees as they call them, were attacking the fuzzy bees. The younger bees were still with the pubescence on them. Mm. So we set up experiments there, which we had a tube leading out of the, the observation hive and downwards into a bottle. And so we were able to open the bottle each day at different intervals, and yeah. we were able to work out which age of bee was being killed. But we eventually took it far, far further. We got out bees from the original hive, and we put them into an incubator. And as they came out each day, we marked them with a different color code on their thorax. So we eventually had to have two color codes because we had so many. And we pumped these into the observation hive. So you had this kaleidoscope of colors in the observation hive there, and then we took out the queen. And then the slaughter began. Oh, my goodness. It's <laughs> <laughs> so we then we knew exactly the age yeah. of each bee that was in the hive. Oh, and as they were killed, yes, as they were killed and they, were, they tried to drag them out, they couldn't pull them out, they dropped them in, down into the bottle. We were able to take them out, dissect the bees, and work out the ovarial development, the number of ovaries that they had in their bodies. And we, they, we had a, a classification table there and we would classify them so we worked out that it was the older bees attacking the younger bees but it wasn't foolproof there were some older bees that were also being killed (laughs) okay okay now let's have another piece of music while we recover from the slaughter Um, and i see those were the days mary hopkins yes this brings back um, memories when i was called up for my national training and we'd been in the bush for many many weeks and we came through near Petersburg, out of the bush there, and onto a farm, if I remember correctly, called Capricorn. And there were two very attractive blonde girls sitting there playing this music, which was Mary Hopkins, <laughs> which, <laughs> which we'd never heard because we had been in the bush all yeah, the time. Of course. So every time I remember when I hear the Mary Hopkins and those were the days, it reminds me of those days of my call-ups. <laughs> <laughs>
There's a good oldie. Those were the days. Mary Hopkins there. And another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Jeff Tribe. We're talking about his fascinating and beautifully illustrated book called Honey Mountain, which has as its subtitle The Fascinating Story of the Hunigberg Since Ancient Times, Its History of Occupation, Exploitation, Development, and the Miraculous Cape Honeybees Who Survived It All. But, Jeff, you've just spoken about how, you know, you conducted these experiments with bees. And right at the beginning, we spoke of your having a really serious allergy to bees. And yet, throughout your life, you've still worked with bees. First of all, how did the allergy come about or how did you know you had an allergy? Well, the first time this happened was when I was removing swarms for somebody at their private home. And it was in, in the confined space. And, of course, we use a smoker. And my throat, oh, you get stung by bees all the time. Mm. And my throat started closing up. And I thought, this is from the smoke that I was inhaling. And then eventually I found out that this was actually an allergy to the bees. And um, it can be very serious, as you mm. know. It can be fatal. It can be fatal. And also beekeepers' wives have died from this as well. And so what happened is that it got worse and worse and worse until eventually I had to be transferred and that's when I was transferred down to Cape Town and it took years it took 16 years basically to get on top of the problem I was doing a lot of running in those days and I was very fit and then I appeared to be putting on weight and I started dropping off the pace and everybody was saying you're not training enough to cut a long story short I went to an iridologist I went through all the medical professions and eventually they told me it was psychosomatic and although my, I could hardly see out of my eyes, my stomach was swollen, muscles, cough muscles were twitching nonstop. And eventually I saw the famous Herman Kerkes, um up in Irene in Pretoria. And he gave me six months to live. He said my whole system was shot. To live? Six months to live? Yes. And he's, I, I asked him what the problem was and he said, what have you been doing? It? And he put it down to athletics. But it wasn't athletics. Anyway, I begged him and he said, you'll take me on as a patient. And I walked out there with his patented medications and I flew up there three months later and he said, your body has responded. I will take you on as a patient. So after about two years on his uh, medication, I was transferred to Perth. Before that, I was transferred down to the forest entomology section in Rosebank in Cape Town. And from there, I was uh, eventually sent to Australia to do a project. And while I was there, I walked past one of my colleagues of the, at the CSRO. And I was so unaware of my surroundings there that I went and ap apologized to him. And he said to me, yes, I can see that there's something wrong. And you've got yuppie flu. And then he gave me a list. And I had almost 90% of the, the symptoms there. And he said, he's got it as well. So I saw another iridologist and they said to me, in, in Australia. And they said to me, if we've got to get your liver right and your liver, if we can get that right, everything else will come right. And so they treated me with um, a certain liquid and they told me between the third and the ninth month, the bloatedness will disappear and your clothes will just hang on you. And that happened in the ninth month. I was working in New South Wales and I was in a little camping ground and I'd have to go into town, which was 60 kilometers away to get some provisions. And everything was hanging on me. But I was still not right, and I came back. And to cut a long story short, a friend of mine who had also picked this up, also from my school days, said it was because of tick bite. So, and it was treated by a French-Belgium doctor in the country. So I contacted her, and she took me on. And she said it's a rickettsial disease. 
you get the viruses, which you can do very little about, and then you get the bacteria that you can treat. And the rickettsia are very close to the bacteria. So what that means, they could treat you with antibiotics. So they treated me with massive doses over six months. And then I went down with flu, and then she said, oh, this is wonderful because your immune system has started to work. Yeah. And then yeah. I had to build up again. And within a short time, I was back running. And within a year, I was breaking the veterans western province records my goodness what a story jeff so it was yuppie flu that actually set this whole thing in motion and no one diagnosed it and still it's controversial today they don't want to recognize that yes i've had many people contact me and i've sent them to this dr Mm Jaden, and they've been cured some people haven't been cured and of course uh, if you follow what she tells you then you will be cured but a lot of people believe that they can do better or they know better, know yeah, better. Yeah. but it hasn't cured your allergy to bees no but i have been treated now by iridologists and also with the skier machine i don't know if you've heard about no, that not at all. Uh, it's also controversial in that you they put um, electrodes on your wrists and on your ankles and you've got to put in your full name where you were born and when you were born and you've got a frequency apparently which is like a fingerprint And so the machine judges your frequency and then it looks at every single organ and stimulates the organs that are not up to that right frequency. And with that came a complete change in diet. So the sugars, the um, grains, etc., have to be taken out. So basically a high-protein diet again. And since then, I've been stung by bees and they react normally. No wheels. I was stung just the other day in Cape Point. Two bees on the side of the head. My fault. <laughs> I shouldn't have been there. <laughs> and no reaction except for the normal swelling. Okay. Gosh, that's good to know. So, in fact, you've been cured of the allergy. More or less. More or yes. less. More or less. We'll say more or less. Sure. I feel rather exhausted after that. What a story, Jeff. So, we need another piece of music. Where do you go to, my lovely, Peter Sarstedt? Tell me about this. I thought that this was a very clever compilation. If you listen to the words, and it's got a historical context as well, and I've traveled around Europe, and I've seen the back streets of Naples, and you can actually imagine what it was like. Mm. But I think it was a very cleverly put together piece of work. Talk like Marlena Dietrich And you dance like Zizi Jarmer Your clothes are all made by Palma And there's diamonds and pearls in your hair Yes, there are You live in a fancy apartment Off the boulevard Saint-Michel Where you keep your Rolling Stones records and a friend of Sasha Dispel, yes you do. But, but where do you go to, my lovely, when you're alone in your bed? Tell me the thoughts that surround you. I want to look inside your head, yes I do. I've seen all your qualifications. You got from the Sorbonne 
And the painting you stole from Picasso Your loveliness goes on and on, yes it does When you go on your summer vacation You go to Juan de With your carefully designed topless swimsuit You get an even suntan on your back and on your legs And when the snow falls you're found in Samoritz With the others of the jet set And you sip your Napoleon brandy But you never get your lips wet, no you don't But where do you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed Won't you tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do Your name is heard in high places You know the Aga Khan He sent you a racehorse for Christmas And you keep it just for fun, for a laugh <laughs> They say that when you get married It'll be to a millionaire But they don't realize where you came from And I wonder if they really care or give a damn Where do you go to, my lovely? When you're alone in your bed Tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do I remember the back streets of Naples Two children begging in rags Both touched with a burning ambition To shake off the lowly bone takes a bit try So look into my face, Marie Claire And remember just who you are Then go and forget me forever But I know you still bear the score deep inside Yes, you do I know where you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed I know the thoughts that surround you Cause I can look inside your head That's Peter Sostet, Where Do You Go To My Lovely? And it's the choice of my guest, people of note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Jeff Tribe. Jeff, we're talking about your book, Honey Mountain, and um, the fascinating stories of bees. And isn't it interesting how bees do fascinate people? They're people who say when the bees go wrong, the planet goes wrong. And you spoke about your being stung and your allergies. Many people have allergies. But our bees in this country are not terribly aggressive, are they? Well, it depends what you mean by aggressive. Um, oh, they true. are there to defend their hive. Yes. 
And if you interfere with them, you're going to get the results of your interference, very mm-hmm. much so. The KP is renowned for being less aggressive, but there are, of course, individual hives that are extremely aggressive. Mm-hmm. So the mood within the hive can be different from one hive to another? Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, again, in genetics. You can actually breed selectively for uh, more vicious bees, which mm-hmm. people don't actually want. But um, the apiary that I used to keep, I used to have the most vicious bees on the outside, so those were the first bees that they attacked, and mm-hmm. they usually left the, all their kit lying there, and we found them the next day, the kit lying around. <laughs> okay. And um, I've often wondered, the business of smoking the bees, what effect does that actually have? It's not in any way dangerous, is it? No. The bees, their normal reaction is to suck up honey, and once the abdomens are distended, they're less inclined to sting and it was quite interesting we published a paper three of us four of us on work that we had done in cape point where we went and analyzed all the different nests there and a fire went through these are wild nests in and we found out that they all got propolis coverings in front of them and um, when the fire went through only four of them were melted to some extent and all of them survived the fire but there was just gray ash around there afterwards and then the fire-loving plants would come out of the ground within a week or so and the bees could start off again. So that period that they had to tie themselves over, Mm. they had to have relied on the honey that they'd sucked up had the whole hive been destroyed by the fire. So it's a survival mechanism of them. They suck up honey and they go back into the deepest recess as the fire passes them. Some of the textbooks actually tell you that the bees fly out and they escape the fire but that's actually impossible the queen is too heavy because she's laying eggs the smoke is whirling all around you've got to have pheromones for them to make that swarm to get together and they wouldn't know in which direction to go anyway they could fly directly into the fire so the smoke causes them this reaction of receding back into the depths of the cavity where they're living Mm -hmm. as a fire passes. and you spoke about propolis 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 is a greek word pro polis before the city. It's a mixture of resins and um, waxes which they scrape off plants. Mm -hmm. And it's also got antibacterial, of course, and antiviral. It's very much used as a medicinal thing. People use it for all sorts of things, fungal infections and all that. And the bees, in a way, use it for their own reasons as well. On a hot day, the perfume from the propolis wafts into the, the hive, and it must have some medicinal activity in the hive itself on mm-hmm. their bees. And let's just talk briefly about the honey badger, which seems to be a really quite evil machine, uh, impervious to stings. The honey badger is protected by law. You're not allowed to kill them. Oh, really? And this is why the beekeepers, uh, 99% of them, put their hives up on railings. And they've got to strap them down to the railings because the badgers are very clever. They go underneath and they jump up and they knock them off. So they have always been a problem, but the beekeepers have had ways around it to prevent that. But any hive that's on the ground, um, they're liable to be attacked. And the, the badger actually tears the entire hive apart to get at the brood. Mm-hmm. I was watching on YouTube where one sees these endless things of a badger attacking a hive. And it really is quite extraordinary because all the bees come and sting it and it just doesn't, it just carries on, just blundering through. It's got a very thick skin mm-hmm. and the bees don't penetrate it. These things don't penetrate it. It's only around the eyes that they've got to be uh, careful. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Nature is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yes. You know, I mentioned earlier about the pictures in this book, and you've got lots of insects. Are these insects, did you put them in the book? I, I haven't read the book cover to cover, I have to confess. Were they just to show insects in the area, or are they necessarily predators? The mo- most important chapter there at the end to do with the insects is the concerns the banded bee pirate. It's an indigenous wasp which feeds solely on uh, bees and honeybees. Mm-hmm. It collects the bees flying in or out, paralyzes them, takes them, buries them in the soil, and about five of them are put together and then it lays an egg on it. And then the larvae then feeds on those five dead adult bees there. But the numbers get so huge in that area. They're in sandy areas at the hottest time of the year and the hottest time of the day. And they've calculated the certain small apiaries of, say, about 20 halves that they can take in a four-month period over a million bees. And what happens is that the bees are so intimidated that they form what are called like teeth in the the front of the hive, and they block the hive. And they let out a a moaning sound. It's like a deep, really? And the wasp can't get at them, so they eventually alight on the hive itself, and they try and attract the, the bees, pull them out, and they will clout the bee, and the bee, will, one of the guards will come further and further out. And the defensive mechanism of the bee is to lift its forelegs because it has to grab to bring its sting into yes, um, yes. play. So as it lifts its legs, its forelegs, the wasp grabs those and then stings it on its uh, bottom of its abdomen with a stinger. And it's so fast, turns around, and they're gone. <laughs> it takes a split second. I didn't know this people of note was going to be so violent, Jeff. (laughs) But anyway, let's take another piece of music. Bruce Miller, he was a colleague of mine at the SABC for many years, and we know him from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream. You've chosen I Won't Give Up. Yes, it was quite interesting. I was up in the Richtersfeld with friends, and I went for a – they were uh, tired from the heat, and I went for a long, long walk. And I landed up about six kilometers away from the camping site, and I sat down – and um, there's just pure silence. And the one th- biblical thing comes, be still and know that I am God. That's yes. the one thing that went through my mind. And the other thing was this Bruce Miller tune. Now, where I'd heard it before, I don't know. But I must have heard it. We didn't have a radio in the, the bucket that we were driving. And so when I got back, I Googled it. And I thought, this reminds me always of the Richtersfeld, which is a beautiful place to visit. won't give up my dream there's a love for me somewhere in this world of loneliness someone whose cup is filled with tears and waiting like me to share that sweet embrace and chase away the saddened face of yesterday's fears I won't give up the search till I find the one whose kisses will awake my heart and make it fly take my stand because I know there's someone in this world who won't give up till she's holding my hand I won't give up my dream 
share that sweet embrace and chase away the saddened face of yesterday's fears. I won't give up the search till I find the one whose kisses will awake my heart and make it fly. That was Bruce Miller, the piece called I Won't Give Up. And we've been having music choices by my guest on People of Note, Jeffrey Tribe, and talking about the fascinating world of bees. And one of the things I wanted to say about this book that I found when I was browsing through it, through the contents and the, what, I, what I've read about it, is in a sense, it's a kind of history book because of what you've done with the the various tribes, the overseas visitors, the local flora and fauna. It's a kind of a history book, and I do mean that positively, just by the way, you're looking a bit glum. (laughs) (laughs) No, that is correct. I'm interested in history. Mm -hmm. I mean, this book could not have been put together when we did it over COVID, the lockdown, had I not had all that information at my fingertips. Mm -hmm. This is about 50 years of research, in a way, of just reading of history, local history, international history, you'll see all the little connections that happen from all over the world that have got an impact on this. And it is, it's both a browsing book, a coffee table book, I would say, and also a book that you can really get absorbed in and, as I say, turn it into a fascinating history of the country. But just one of the last questions, Jeff, because always in radio we run out of time, you certainly seem to have had a passion for bees that has carried you throughout your whole life. Apart from your book, what other areas of the honeybee are you still involved in now in your retirement? I'm still interested in following up some of the honeybee places or names. Like there are other Hunangbergs, there are two others. There's two Hunangclips. I've found the one and I've got to get permission to get into the property there. But these are all historical sites. But I'm leaving bees for a while except for a certain small publications that we will still do mm-hmm. and I'm actually moving on to the family history which I've been busy doing your family yes on both sides of the family oh that's interesting so, I mean I, the strange name I've got um, you must try where the hang did that come <laughs> I from did actually, I did <laughs> but let's not go there now otherwise we'll have another whole people of note <laughs> Jeff just let me ask you where people can get this book from uh, they can get it directly from me by writing to sending me an email at gdtribe at g 
gmail.com. And I'm selling it for 350 rand plus postage. And the postage is usually by Paxi or one of those, and mm-hmm. it's 60 rand. Okay. So you're not going to be able to go to one of the big bookshops and get it. You must come through you. No, you can get it at Kirsten Bush Bookstore. You can get it at False Bay Books. And, of course, in the Hunangberg at the Jan Donkwarts uh, Museum. Okay. So just give me your email address again. It's gdtribe, T-R-I-B-E, at gmail. Dot com. Okay. And, well, I can say that I thoroughly recommend it. It's been a joy browsing through this book, and it's been a joy talking to you, Jeff. So thank you. And your last piece, Word of Mouth, Mike and the Mechanics, is a little story here to end. We, from those innocent days that I talked about in America, the world has changed quite a lot. And I think this is a very nice message. Do not trust any of what is going on today. Look very carefully at all the science. Look very carefully at it. If your gut says that it's not right, it's probably not right. (laughs) There's some words of wisdom from my guest, Jeff Tribe. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Music